Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hi, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. I'm Nabil, and I'm your host for today. Today, we're going to be talking about our study into invasive non-typhoidal salmonella in rural Gambia. Joining me today as two special guests, we have Grant McKenzie, who is a clinical epidemiologist working at the MRC Union, the Gambia, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also Abdullah Kante, who is a higher scientific officer in the genomics core facility, also working at the MRC unit, the Gambia at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So since it's both of your first times, who are you and what do you both typically do? Let's start with Grant. Thank you, Nabil and Andrew for inviting us to join you. I'm working for the last 13 years actually in West Africa in Gambia with the MRC unit. I'm a clinical epidemiologist and paediatrician by background, and I'm usually involved in invasive bacterial disease surveillance in the rural area of the Gambia. We have lots of doctors and nurses and microbiology laboratory and x-ray service data center about 500 kilometers from the coast in the middle of nowhere, where we've got a population of three or 400,000 people under uh, demographic surveillance and all of this uh, system works in with the government uh, health system to detect cases of pneumonia or sepsis or meningitis or malaria coming to the health facilities in the area and we investigate the sick children and we can use that surveillance data to look at the effects of certain interventions over time. We're, We're also doing other sort of interventional studies as well but that's the main thing that i'm involved in okay and what about you abdullah what who are you and what do you typically do um thank you very much nabil i i work at the genomics core facility at mrc unit the gambia at london school of hygiene and tropical medicine i joined the unit um, in 2007 as a laboratory technician and over the years i worked in different um, projects and laboratories including microbiology molecular biology, as well as um, genomics. I'm currently working in the genomics platform. So my background is microbiology. I have an MSc in bioinformatics from the Creamery University of London. So at the genomics lab, I, my typical day will involve either sitting on my desk doing bioinformatics analysis on um, genomics um, samples, or maybe in the lab preparing library for sequencing. So I do both. Just to say our genomics platform is a well-equipped state-of-the-art um, state-of-the-art equipment for next-generation sequencing. So we have both the Illumina and the Nanopore technologies um, in our lab. So I'm happy to say we are the first to certify to be certified by Nanopore as service provider in Africa. 
Okay. And I mean, this is a very naive question. Uh, last time when we were talking about Norwich and Norfolk, we had to explain where that actually is. So just indulge me, Abdullah, could you tell us where the Gambia actually is and who are the people who live there? So the Gambia is named after its navigable river, which is drawn from the west, western part of the country to the eastern part. It's found in the western part of Africa, and sometimes it is called the Smiling Coast of Africa. It is a small country with a population of about 2 million people. The country is made of six regions. MRCG operates in almost all these regions. So one of the regions where we did our study um, is called the URR, Upper River Region. And it's found in the eastern part of the country where, where the Pneumococcal Surveillance Project has been going on since 2007, um, led by Dr. Grant, um, looking at the impact of pneumococcal um, conjugate vaccine introduced in the Gambia. And uh, Grant, I, I mean, you did touch in, in your introduction some of the different work that you're doing, but specifically, what is some of the more critical projects you're handling to the MRC unit? I'll just mention some of the historical work at the MRC unit in the Gambia. So actually, malaria transmission was defined at in the Gambia, defined as a mosquito-borne disease. Then there's been further fairly groundbreaking research over 40 or 50 years. So the use of insecticide-treated bed nets to prevent malaria was first demonstrated um, in large randomised trials in the Gambia. Uh, hepatitis B vaccine was first trialled in the Gambia and shown with a 30-year follow-up to prevent hepatocellular carcinoma. Haemophilus influenzae type B vaccines were trialled in the Gambia. Pneumococcal vaccines have been trialled in the Gambia. Both of those vaccine trials directly led to global vaccine policy change. Malaria vaccines and malaria treatments have been investigated a lot. Uh, there's a lot of TB research as well. And uh, we're now sort of starting to explore other areas in those strict infectious diseases. Personally, myself, I'm more involved in child health. So as we look into pneumococcal vaccine effectiveness in the country, we also study the effect of malnutrition on susceptibility to sepsis or meningitis or pneumonia. Uh, we also study how to best diagnose these conditions, what gives risk factors for these conditions. Just at the moment, we've started a large cluster randomised trial looking at two different schedules of pneumococcal vaccination to see whether instead of the usual three-dose schedule, you can safely use a two-dose schedule. This is relevant because the vaccine is relatively expensive and a good number of countries have not even introduced the vaccine because of its expense. So we'll um, be determining whether you can safely use two doses rather than three. That, that's keeping me busy at the moment. Is that the PCV13? That's right, yes. It's actually following on the heels of the UK. The UK is the first country in the world to uh, transition from a three-dose to a two-dose uh, pneumococcal vaccine schedule. So we're uh, but trying to see whether that type of approach is safe in a high-transmission, high-burden 
area in Africa. And are you backing that up with genome sequencing? We are not actually, no, sorry. Disappointing. <laughs> Steve Bentley was doing a lot of work on pre and post vaccination uh, for pneumococcal disease. I think we Definitely. need to do something. Okay. Well, let's dive into a specific topic then of invasive non-typhoidal salmonella. And I think really, if we're going to dive deep into it, we've got to lay a bit of background down and, and help people along who aren't up to speed on the biology. So uh, let's start off with just defining like what's the difference between invasive versus non-invasive salmonella. Uh, Abdelaid, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, to make it very simple for our listeners, invasive salmonella, that could mean infection of salmonella outside the gut because we know salmonella is normally found in the gut microbiome. So this is sometimes called in extra-intestinal disease where salmonella infects invasive sites as blood, causing sepsis, bacteremia, or other phenotypes. While non-invasive salmonella is the infection of salmonella in the gut, uh, this is normally self-limiting, gastroenteritis, and it normally comes in the form of diarrhea. Okay, and then I guess the other axis we've got to explain is the difference between typhoidal and non-typhoidal salmonella. Yeah, so here we're talking about Salmonella enterica. So we know taxonomically we have Salmonella can be divided into two, Salmonella bonguri and then Salmonella enterica. So, but the latter is also subdivided into six subspecies. The subspecies one is the one that is well studied because it's the one that infects humans and animals. So we have more than 2,500 servers. So some servers within these species are implicated in life-threatening infection and they exclusively infect humans. This includes Salmonella enterica typhi and uh, So this collectively, they call them typhoid or paratyphoid disease. Uh, they normally cause typhoid and paratyphoid disease respectively. This um, group of cerebrals are called typhoidal Salmonella. But on the other end, we have other cerebrals that are not within this group and they are called non-typhoidal Salmonella. So the two major ones we know that causes disease in the world and in Africa is the typhimerium and the enterotitis. They are known to cause more than 75 million cases, um, of which 25,000 deaths or more. But in sub-Saharan Africa, they are also implicated in causing life-threatening infections such as septicemia, um, pneumonia, and meningitis. So that is a bit um, different. So that is why clinically it's difficult to distinguish between the typhoidal and non-typhoidal in sub-Saharan Africa because both these cerebrals are known to cause invasive disease in our setting. I was just going to ask, is the typhoid vaccine being used in the Gambia? I'm not very sure about that. Grant. And second question, is there much burden of typhoid? In our surveillance over 10 years, we were taking blood cultures from all ages in our population of about 300,000. And... I think we isolated about 20 cases, 25 cases of typhoid disease or typhoid isolates. So it's not highly prevalent. It's quite different in other countries in Africa. In Ghana, there's a lot of typhoid disease and in East Africa and Southern Africa, I think there's more. Why is this an issue in the Gambia specifically then? Uh, what, what drives that, that major change that we see? We don't see typhi, we see other cerevas instead. That's a very good question. I don't think we really know the answer. I mean, we know that 
typhi is of, often associated with you know poor hygiene and food handling in west africa there are I, I guess the density of living urban living is not so great as some of the more dense areas of east and southern africa but really i don't think we know the answer to that question it's all it's all uh, speculation really typhi is very much a problem in asia southeast asia and asia i guess the next question is this is an area of more research and then how can whole genome sequencing help us combat salmonella in the gambia generally yeah so we know that sequencing of bacterial pathogens is getting cheaper and we know that in the gambia mrc in the gambia has the genomic facility which make it very um, important for uh, pathogen genomics um, studies we understand that the ability to dig into the salmonella genome um, could set light on the different virulent factors as well as antimicrobial resistant genes and plasmids that have been harbored by these pathogens. So we've also seen that using whole genome sequencing, we can actually tell the dominant genotypes that are circulating in our setting with possible explanation of what they, why are they dominant. So for example, in Malawi, we've seen that they've used whole genome sequen- sequencing that have highlighted a distinct genotype of Salmonella type medium ST313. So with a possible clonal replacement, um, it was driven by acquisition of um, chlorine clinical resistance. So this was actually done using whole genome sequencing. Similarly, in our study that we, uh, we're gonna talk about today, we've seen um, that some of these NTS non-typhoidal salmonellas that have a, um, a cytolethal distending toxin gene, a particular gene that has been known to be harbored by salmonella typhi and in most of our serovers. So we probably, we think this is the reason why we have been, um, an explosion of these serovers causing invasive disease more than um, the known predominant um, serovers, typhi medium and enterovirus. Yeah, before we get into the study, before you actually started this work, what were you hoping to find? So over the years, during the PSP study, Dr. Grant actually observed that some of these non-typhoidal salmonella serovers, which were not reported to be predominant, are actually coming up. And when we had a discussion, the first thing I thought about was, my first guess was actually that they might be acquiring some virulence factors that are not in the other serovers. Or maybe there is an environmental factor that is giving them this selective advantage but yes, that was actually my guess when we had this discussion. Uh, Grant, anything you'd like to add? In most of Africa, actually, you know, enteritidis and typhimurium have been the dominant causes of invasive uh, non-typhoidal salmonella disease, you know, throughout all of Africa. And a lot of vaccine development is based on those serovar antigens, even in the year 2000 to 2005, we were seeing that typhimurium was causing you know, 60, 80 percent of our invasive cases. But then we started to see a quite a dramatic change where typhimurium and enteritidis were becoming less common and other serovars were becoming more common. And you know, th- this was a concern because it could have implications for vaccine development. Antibiotic resistance is relatively common. 
but you know the real question is could this be a change that might spread throughout other regions in Africa or, or have important implications for vaccine strategies because there are it's a relatively active field to try and develop a vaccine against non-typhoidal salmonella so as Abdullah mentioned we thought we would try and uh, look at genomic aspects that might explain this why does invasive non-typhoidal salmonella generally only happen in Africa not so much in developed countries it's probably just because of a poor gut lining with malnutrition and tropical enteropathy and the the bacteria you know translocate from the gut into the blood a lot easier when you've got a very poor gut lining so i don't think that this problem's going to go away and we just wanted to understand more about why the serovars were changing in prevalence let's get down into the actual study itself and just before we talk results i mean which samples are you investigating and and how were they collected so we had the population based surveillance for 9 years so the strength of that design is that you theoretically try and detect every case in the community you avoid bias due to healthcare seeking due to potential hospitalized cases being different to the general cases in the community so whenever a sick child came to a health facility to nine of our health facilities we would do a blood culture and so we had about 3 or 4000 blood cultures every year for 9 years and we looked at blood culture to provide advice for doctors to provide treatment for children and you know we obviously found uh, quite a bit of salmonella disease maybe 10% of it was typhi but a lot of it is non typhi at the beginning we were finding maybe 20% 25% of the cases were not typhimurium and not enteritidis but then by the last 5 years it was more like 60% of the cases were not typhi and not typhimurium and so that's a pretty dramatic change and we really wanted to understand why that might happen yeah you're seeing this replacement to to salmonella that aren't the usual suspects and from that uh, large sample set that you have over several years some were selected for sequencing and maybe Abdullah wants to comment how were they done how was how were they sequenced yeah so the sequencing was not done in the gambia at that time we don't have the sequencing um, facility so all the samples that grew salmonella we are isolated and extraction was done here in fajara where i am and then they were sent to sanga where the sequencing was done so they were sequenced using the illumina high six 2500 for using 125 days space sequencing fasci files so this was actually done in sanga i suppose that's where i come in because uh i got involved in this project by being in a sanger and by complete chance one day a guy called Gordon Dugan walks in with uh, a guy called Nuruddin who works uh, with Grant 
And he had some data and we did some analysis. And out of that, I got talking to Grant and I went to the Gambia twice. And I never met Grant in the Gambia, but I did meet Ablai and uh, we have worked on it over the past few years, worked on this data. And Ablai has come over to visit Quadrum as well for a month to work with myself and Nabil. So it's been a great informal collaboration. No grants are written about this. It's just we've come together and we've uh, worked on, on the project together to get a little paper out. So it's very important to network. So that, that's just a little aside. Yeah, it's worked very well. It's been very good. Yeah, so as um, Andrew mentioned, so when I went to Quadrum, uh, it was really a great um, pleasure to meet you there and, and Andrew himself. So some of the skills that I learned during my bioinformatics course in Kinumeri and, and in Quadrum, I was able to come up with a pipeline and the pipeline includes basically to do a phylogenetic analysis to look at the, the relationship uh, um, of these servers, the phylogenetic relationship of these servers. So I first had to um, do a, read, a QC. So I had to QC all the sequencing, um, all the reads using fast QC, and then assemble the genomes using spades. Because most of the time the assemblies are not really up to par, you have to do some QCs on them. So I was able to do all QCs, and then we found out that three of the samples had very large genomes compared to the normal salmonella. So we had to remove those because um, they probably be potential contaminants. We screened for virulence genes, antimicrobial resistant genes, as well as plasmid genes in, from all the samples. So we also construct a phylogenetic tree using SNPI. So we're able to use the core genome alignment. Then I've constructed a tree using IQ tree and then annotated using ITOP. So we used Aurori to do to look at the pan genome and the core genome analysis of all our samples. So basically, that was kind of the pipeline that I've um, used to look at the genomes from the salmonella samples. Okay, good. Sounds like a, a tried and tested, a reliable workflow. And so, based off that, what were some of the key findings out of, out of all of this work? Overall, when we look at it, so we found out that there were a lot of non-type order salmonella that is not type medium and enteritis that kind of overtook the whole show. So we had about 60 or more percent of those serovers, not type medium and enteritis. So we are really, that was a bit surprising because we know previously a study was done in the same setting by Nuruddin that most of the serovers that were causing invasivities were enteritis and followed by type medium. So, and then the other set of us that were not type medium introduced really um, contributed only a little. But what we found here was the reverse. So we found more of the set of us than not type medium introduced and type And also what we found that was really interesting is that, they, the, that there was high fatality rate or mortality rate that we are associated with these set of us. If you compare the different set of us that we have, what we saw was that most of the uh, mortality of people that died due to um, infection of salmonella were actually from these serovers that we call in our paper atypical. And one of the things when we look at the genome, what we found was that there was this, this particular gene that was really common in, in, our, in those serovers that we're talking about. And it's, it's called the cytolethal and dystonic toxin gene. So actually the gene was known to be only harbored by typhi, which is a human specific serover. And then it's also known to be to contribute to its pathogenicity. What we saw was that majority um, of our samples, more than um, 60% of 
which are not typhimerium entities or typhi, they actually harbor in this gene. So in that sense, we kind of speculate that this particular gene could be contributing to what we are seeing. I think I'll throw in a reviewer three kind of question here. I mean, is any of these trends due to perhaps differences in the sample collection over different years? Was the number of samples, total number of samples per year, more or less consistent? Can these results be explained by some sort of sample bias or something like that? And Abdullah or Grant, if you want to comment. Yeah, I can just comment on the rate of blood cultures from year to year. You know, that does change because you don't have a selected number that you do every year. You have to attend to each child that comes into the surveillance system. And it's generally related to the rainfall and malaria prevalence. If you have a heavy rainfall year, you get more malaria, you get more respiratory virus activity in the wet season. You get more children coming in and you do more blood cultures. So like, for example, the, the year where we had the smallest number of blood cultures done in, in children, it was 2009, that was like 1,900 blood cultures. But then we had a flood and then we had 3,500 blood cultures in 2015. So if you do more tests, you will find more cases. So in terms of the, you know, the incidence of disease or the number of cases, that will change with the number of tests that you do. I haven't seen any evidence, though, that in other settings, malaria prevalence predisposes to particular serovars of non-typhoidal salmonella. And usually the, well, it's actually quite well known that the, the susceptibility is mainly due to neutrophil dysfunction following malaria infection, which lasts for three or four months. And usually neutrophil dysfunction is not going to be predisposing to one serovar over another serovar. So yes, we do see changes in incidence and number of cases over time, but I don't see it's obviously going to uh, be related to a change in serovar proportions over time. Yeah, and, and presumably since it's driven by those factors, I assume that even on years where there was low sampling or recent years with low sampling and recent years with high samplings, you're still seeing a drop in enteritis and typhimurium and an increase in these other serovars. Yeah, that's right. It's been consistent for the last five years that the so-called atypical serovars are causing 60 65% of invasive disease. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned this previous study that, that did not show that. So when was that actually conducted uh, relative to this one? Yeah, that was from 2000 to 2005 in the same geographic area. And the so-called atypical serovars caused about 15%, 10 to 15% of the invasive disease at that time. This is a reasonably rapid change over quite a few years, but reasonably rapid. So what has changed, do you think, to explain the shift? Our study was not designed to answer this question. So our data are not 
ideal. You know, 70 or 80 percent of households have sheep or goats in them, and that hasn't changed over seven years. Poultry ownership is 80 or 90 percent in different in the households in the study area. That hasn't changed. We don't see a lot of pig production in our area. Uh, I think the domestic animal data that we have are really capturing the main domestic animal use in, in the area. I, I think malnutrition prevalence has not changed. We have good data on that. HIV is definitely a risk factor for invasive NTS. That has not changed in terms of its prevalence. It's actually very low prevalence, maybe 1% or 2%. That hasn't changed over time. Malaria incidence, you know, goes up and down over time. But actually, malaria in general is becoming less common. But as I said, it's, it's hard to hypothesize a biologic mechanism whereby malaria falling in prevalence or incidence would actually give you a serovar-specific risk. So that's really why we went to the, the bacteria to try and investigate the genomic aspects that might be associated with this change. Yeah, so that's very interesting. I also mentioned one of the things that we've observed in our data is that in 2010, on 2011, we've seen a very high peak of um, salmonella entry to this in our setting. There was this flood that happened in 2010 and it lasted for more than two months in Basse. Potentially there could be contaminations of um, waters and livestock. So, um, and then when I look at the phylogenetic tree, um, realized that all the samples that were collected in 2010, 2011 actually clustered together um, with a very short, I mean, some of them, the branches are, you can actually see that these um, genomes are actually very, very related or closely related. So digging into that um, is my next um, kind of step to look at actually what is happening um, in 2010 and 2011. So in, especially on the entry But apparently I'm just speculating that that could be a reason why we have that spike there. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. You know, interested from the salmonella experts whether the gene that Abdullah mentioned being identified in these atypical serovars and it possibly being related to clades does it make sense to you that you've got quite a number of different atypical serovars which have this, this gene or these particular clades and what sort of mechanisms might lead to multiple atypical serovars becoming more common? I mean, I can't see that Enteritidis and Typhimurium have some... Well, I don't know. Maybe we could investigate those to see whether they have lost virulence elements. So but, I, uh, I recall when looking at this data with Ablai that this particular gene was very prevalent in Typhi, but then not really in all the other published genomes is very, very rarely observed, except in your atypical ones. It was seemed to be everywhere. So that would suggest multiple 
independent introductions. I don't know what the mechanism is, but it seems to be quite a an outlier, certainly in your data. And it does seem interesting. Mm. But probably the only way you could uncover the the full story would be to go back into the lab and maybe do long read sequencing and you know just double check everything and see it does it actually have some kind of influence or is it just a random thing that has happened and we're we're not looking at the real thing we're looking at something else i can imagine that if you have a genomic change that provides some advantage for transmission or adherence or or virulence that because the niche of the gut is only a certain certain size that might then dis if it does have advantages it might displace the other cerevars and i think is it abdullah your investigation into the activity of this gene you found that it was associated with adherence and colonization as well as virulence wasn't it yeah that's true yeah, I'm not exactly sure what is mobilizing the CDT, the cytolethal distending toxin in these different cerevars. I should point out for the listeners that the cerevars are very distinct as far as the population structure of Salmonella is concerned. They are pretty much, they're, they're all Salmonella and Enteriga, but that's about it. They, the split would go back to the central split of all Salmonella. So these are, I think, the major cerevars, Dublin, then things like Bredney, Miami, Seltenberg, Oranienburg, Verkov. And Dublin's a known, a known operator to, to be concerned about. But most of these really aren't the canonical ones that you, that you go after. And the fact that, yeah, we find consistently find the CDT in, in, in a lot of these probably suggests that there is some element that's being passed around that these are all acquiring and causing invasive disease. Are they passing it from each other? Probably not. It probably is something spontaneous where they are picking these up from because of some selective pressure in the environment that's pushing them to, to pick these up. So I don't know what mobilizes CDT in this case. It could be just a recombination. It could be driven by some mobile genetic element or something like that. And I think that is where Andrew's saying that coming back with long reads and really breaking down the gene synteny and looking at how the genome structure changes between these cerevars would give us an idea of how these are actually acquiring this virulence. So there's definitely a lot more to do. I think the, the strong evidence that Entrance and typhimurium are being replaced by, by other cerevars, all other things considered, uh, is a very uh, interesting result. It's something that I have spotted in the literature over the last couple of years that people are seeing other cerevars that are popping up. Again, it's dependent on is it simply because we're testing more and more or, or not, depends in each case. But this does seem to be a trend. And then this does have an implication of if we can't just have a single target for going after enteritidis or just going after typhimurium. We have to start thinking about all Salmonella enterica or even Salmonella genus wide 
being an issue and being something that we have to have something to work against at any any given salmonella yeah i'd be um quite concerned whether this type of uh, phenomenon is going to spread geographically in, in africa i think there are vaccine platforms which are not serovar specific like whole cell or attenuated bacterial platforms as well as outer membrane vesicles but but there's also a lot of effort being put into serovar specific and i think nabil if you have seen trends along this in other settings as well it, it may be that it's not so worthwhile pursuing those serovar specific strategies anymore I mean, it's it's going to be a, a whack-a-mole kind of problem where we're going to need a multi-pronged approach to target this. Getting rid of enteritidis and getting rid of typhimurium is good. Uh, that's that that's going to help anybody with with disease burden. But yeah, I think it's just a thing of not being too uh, narrow, not having too much tunnel vision on just those two, and it comes back to how we think about pathogens and what is a pathogen versus what is something that's quite benign. And the logic is that if you have typhi, you have a problem. If you have typhimurium and enteritis, you have a problem. Everything else we're not bothered about. That, I think, is an old-fashioned view and needs to change. I think pathogenesis, given the right conditions, can come from anywhere. So just to finish up, what are the next steps given your findings? My next step, I want to look at the non-sterile um, sites. So NTS, we now have to see samples from um, the Global Enteric Multicenter Study GEMS, which was done also in rural Gambia, Basse. So the aim is to look at those servers too, and then probably compare what, compared to what we have from the pneumococcal surveillance study. So those samples, we are not sequenced yet. So I think um, it will be important to look at those servers because these are coming from um, the gut. And then we, they have cases and controls so it will be important to have a look at those serovers. I'm also thinking of doing a microbiome analysis to assess what's going on during um, salmonella infections. So if we have that stool samples coming from um, the GEM study, it would also be an important thing to look at. And host genetic factors as well as environment, so including the domestic animals. So we probably want to go and check um, what is happening at the domestic level. This could be the servers that we're talking about, probably they're coming from the food that we're eating or perhaps from the environment. So it's something that I'm thinking about. And I think if Grant, if you agree, this is one of the things that I think might help us know where these things are coming from. And also I hear you're looking for a PhD as well. So I'm sure if anyone listening has any positions that would be suitable, they should get in touch with uh, Mir and Nabil or with you directly. Grant, anything you want to add following that? Uh, no, I, I think it would be important to um, just understand more about this gene. I think it would be worthwhile to look at the case fatality in the NTS cases where this gene is present and not present, just to see whether the case fatality is truly associated with that gene in specific, specifically. And I would just encourage other investigators in West Africa to you know, be looking at their 
CIRIVAR distributions in invasive NTS to be monitoring for this type of phenomenon. Okay. And so I think at that point, we'll wrap up. So that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, we've been talking about invasive non-typhoidal salmonella in rural Gambia, and much of what we've been talking about will be available in a preprint if you want to learn more. So I'd like to thank our guests, Grant and Abdullah, and I'll see you next time on the MicroBinfi podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrant Institute.